The Folly of Anne by Ellen Farley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. As Anne March turned to seat herself on the top step of the tightly shuttered house, she first saw the key, its bright round top winking up at her like a friendly eye. Her misery-sodden mind regarded it indifferently. It belonged, probably, to the door behind her. But the house seemed deserted, closed for the summer. Then someone coming in or going out had dropped it. She would ring the bell and return it to the caretaker. She pushed the button lightly at first, then vigorously, but no one appeared. The caretaker was away, she reflected, or perhaps there was none. Anne paused, dancing the key in her hand. Then a mad idea flashed into her head. A key in time is worth nine, she murmured. With a quick glance around, she fitted it into the tiny hull, and the boarded door swung out. A massive inner door of mahogany and silver likewise opened readily. She stood, breathing heavily, in the gloom of a wide hall filled with bulky, shrouded shapes. Only a moment she hesitated. Then reckless daring superseded vague terror, and noiselessly she went up to the floor above. The first door she tried gave way at her touch, and she entered, closing it carefully and slipping the bolt. Making her way through the semi-gloom to a broad divan in the corner, she huddled herself up on it, her hands hugging her knees, listening fearfully. "'Well, what of it?' she addressed an invisible accuser. "'I'm neither foolish nor afraid. My intentions are honest and honorable, unconnected with the family silver. I need shelter. I'm depriving no one.' And I stay, come what may, when or how. I care not. Her head dropped back wearily. She settled herself more comfortably, and her hat slipped to the floor. An unutterable weariness of despair was upon her. She sighed again, pondered drearily, and so drifted into a deep, delicious sleep. Velvet inky blackness shut her in when at last she opened her eyes. She listened after a prolonged stretching for the raucous peal of the alarm clock that would summon her to the steaming griddle cakes in the dining room, and then, with a start, she remembered the vast distance that lay between her and Taylorsville, with its neat cottages, the toy schoolhouse, and her pigtailed pupils. She rose, her arms thrust out gropingly, and advanced a few steps. Her fingers came in contact with something hard, big, rounding, the back of a chair. Another step, a little table tilted back a bit, then settled down with a jarring noise that seemed to reverberate in an endless void of darkness. Then her fingers, fluttering over its surface, touched a tiny box. Matches! With a suppressed gurgle of delight, she lit a tiny candle on the desk and surveyed the room more carefully. Before the wardrobe, where a Japanese kimono dangled loathsomely, Anne hesitated. I believe I'd rather be hanged for a sheep than for a lamb, she decided and unhooking her waist, she slipped into the kimono's cool, silken voluminousness. My inner lady is clamoring, she reflected then. I wonder if the caretaker has returned, or perhaps there isn't any, and there might be a stray cracker in the kitchen. Blowing out the candle, but clutching the matches, she slipped through the door. If I meet anyone, I'll say that I'm a kleptomaniac, she thought grimly. Nevertheless, she walked softly. Step pause, step, her limbs dragging, hearing every second a voice thundering halt from the black depths, until at last she reached the kitchen, 
lighted her candle, and placed it on the plain scrubbed table. At the coating of dust her fingertips imprinted, her heart leaped joyfully. I don't believe there is a caretaker, she whispered. Marooned on the empty shelves in the cupboard, a tin labeled sardines, a tall bottle of pickles, and a glass jar of asparagus greeted her. Poor lonesome things, they're positively begging me to eat them. Oh, what was that? Tap, tap, tap sounded on the window pane again. She could hear the rattling of the area door. Grabbing the candle, she rushed into the hall and started to mount the stairs. But suddenly she knew that she could not breathe in the night of the upper rooms with the knowledge that someone prowled below. She turned boldly to the door and drew back the heavy bolt. A good-natured face under a blue helmet looked in, the suspicious eyes changing as they swept the kimono, the hair braided childishly over her shoulder, and the rose light filtering through the gold filigreed candle shade. I saw a light, miss, and I was wondering how it came there, knowing the family was away. His tone was almost apologetic. It's nice to know I'm so well protected, she said sweetly, biting her tongue to still her chattering teeth. Maybe then you're some relation, he suggested. Oh, certainly, she affirmed glibly. I'm Mrs. Burton, the married daughter, you know. I thought I could find where Miranda keeps her preserves for a little midnight lunch. It was a bit creepy here alone, but now that I've seen you, I shall feel perfectly safe. She was closing the door, throwing a last smile through the chink. I'll take care that no one disturbs you, he promised. Good night, ma'am. And swinging his stick, he departed. Now, for pickles, asparagus, and sardines, she murmured, and under the protection of the law, too. Oh, it doesn't pay to be respectable and afraid and stupid. In searching for a can opener, she discovered a package of wheat biscuits and climbed the stairs boldly, gleefully hugging her prizes. I don't care. It's wrong and selfish and wicked to shut up a big house. Good heavens! Directly opposite, a shaft of light fell through a partly open door. At her exclamation, a man straightened up from a suitcase, a silver-backed brush in his hand. What the deuce? He checked himself, gazing at the girlish figure behind the pink glow of the candle, open-mouthed. Her fear-dilated eyes roved over the scattered clothes on the floor the rifled open drawers of the chiffonier, the dresser, and returned to his face, the significance of the confusion dawning slowly upon her. Oh, there are two of us, aren't there? she cried. She wavered slightly, and her laugh gurgled with hysterical shrillness. You'd better sit down, said the man gravely. Staring at the polished nails of the long, slim hand that pushed it forward, Anne dropped limply into the big leather chair. I hardly hoped to find anyone at home he explained politely. I, I, she choked. A wave of defiance swallowed her fear. I'm not at home. No, he looked puzzled. I found a key on the doorstep and I came in, she said, and then I was hungry. He looked at the tins, still clutched tightly in her arms. Taking them from her, he opened one and offered her a sardine and biscuit sandwich. In the big chair, with her braids over her shoulder and her wide questioning eyes, she looked like a child. Excuse me, said the burglar, disappearing for a moment and returning with a huge bottle. Apollinaris, he explained. I ran across it in there, nodding vaguely. He found a glass and filled it for her. Have some asparagus, he asked, tearing the top off the glass jar. In silence, she dipped in with her fingers and sighed contentedly over the fat, succulent stems. Of course, it can't be. It's a nasty dream, but it seems real, she said aloud, studying him fearfully. 
Then he looked up. His glance met hers, and she shrank back in a fright. It was real, fantastically horribly real, that she, Anne March, schoolteacher of Taylorsville, clad in a kimono, was eating asparagus and sardines with a burglar in a deserted house in the middle of New York. Oh, I must go, she gasped, starting to rise. The man put out a protesting hand. I am leaving in a moment, he said. Rather unfortunate our dates conflicted, eh? But I resign the field to you. You don't believe me, do you? Why should you, though? She added bitterly. I suppose the world owes you a living, too, and won't pay. And you just decided to take it. Oh, I understand. We just have to live. Being good is a matter of convenience somehow. You don't split hairs when you're starving, do you? That's how I came here. But all I've taken is shelter, yet. She held up one slender hand. It's like yours, she explained, rather useless for real labor. She felt that she was talking wildly, but the attentive eyes of the burglar seemed to urge her on, to invite confidence. Do you think I'd make good in your profession? I was penniless, homeless, and incredibly reckless, but honest until now. But do you know, I think I'd like to relieve the corrupt rich of their tainted money. I'm sure I could teach my conscience to be no trouble at all in time. She paused, breathless. Any woman can, he agreed. But, he smiled pleasantly, despite appearances, I also am really an honest man, not even a kleptomaniac, he explained. I live here, even when the family are at home. It's my cousin's house, and I returned tonight from a month at Narragansett. I meant to go to a hotel, and then remembered some things I wanted here. Then you found me. I'm sorry I disturbed you, he ended gravely. Is there anything I can do for you before I go? Oh, what an abandoned creature I must seem. Her face was flaming now. And I was rejoicing, glorying. I think you startled me awake. I came in on a mad impulse. I'm sane now, and I'm going. Where? The word struck her chillingly, like a point of ice in her heart. She looked at him, her mouth trembling. That doesn't matter. Where do all the desperate, helpless creatures go? Oh, your monster of a town will swallow me quickly enough. If you knew how confidently I came, all loaded with precious manuscripts. Later I burned them to heat my canned soup, as long as I could buy canned soup. Oh, I wondered. Now, if you were a stenographer, or a chauffeur, or a lady's maid, but you write, dear me. Oh, I say, how would you like to be a secretary? Secretary? Oh, but you do not know me. How could you trust me? Rushed to her lips. I believe you, he said gravely. Besides, you're just the sort of person Shells is looking for. You'll be a gift of providence to him. It's impossible. A miracle, she murmured. But don't tell him about this weird adventure, he added. Despite his wonderful brain and marvelous work, Shales is conventional. You might say you heard of the job through a friend of Miss Gilkins, his last secretary, who recently married. I dare say you can furnish references from your old town. Oh, yes, yes. He took an envelope from his pocket and wrote an address rapidly on the back, which he tore off and handed to her. You're very kind, she whispered. Joy at the wonder of this kindly providence was mingled with a vague fear at its incredible strangeness. Good night, he said. Good night. She stood rooted to the floor, staring, overwhelmed. Then, with a little rush, she stopped him in the doorway, thrusting out her hands timidly. Good night, and please believe, oh, I do thank you. His dark eyes held hers for a moment, sadness and laughter in their depths. 
Good night, little girl, and good luck, he returned, and slammed the door behind him. Mrs. Gordon Shales stretched herself luxuriously in her big chair, dropped to the magazine she was reading, to gaze dreamily into the red heart of the great fire. Through the sweeping rose brocade curtains was the glimmering vista of a white, whirling snowstorm. But she was seeing the long length of a deserted summer street, jagged shadows on the cobblestones, the round, winking eye of a key staring up at her from before a tightly boarded door. What a magic day that had been for her! How brilliantly her life had developed since! Anne, thou fool, she murmured. Her slender fingers flipped the pages of the magazine restlessly, and a tiny frown trembled between her brows. Nowadays, in the lap of all the fat luxury that was hers, she found herself dwelling with recurrent thrills on the memory of that rash, mad escapade. Strange, she had never met the man since, nor gleaned a trace of him, despite her elaborately cautious inquiries. Day by day she had waited with the fluttering hope that he would walk into Shells's study in some unexpected moment, but he had never come. Then, in the wonder of the name and position and love the great writer had offered her, the image of the other man had faded and she had forgotten. Yet, at opera and reception, she sometimes awoke to find herself looking for a sadly humorous mouth, for the black, questioning eyes that she would know among a million faces. And my love. Yes, Gordon, in my sitting-room, she directed sweetly. Through the arched door beyond, a pale, stooped, partly bald man with mild blue eyes and glasses came, carefully balancing a mass of photographs in one hand. I've been running through my desk, and I thought you might like to see the man your husband used to be, and the children. He smiled, tumbling the pictures on the little table at her elbow. Absently, Anne scanned a weazened baby in a voluminous christening robe, a high-browed, serious child of four in kilts, and then, her eyes gleamed, but she dropped her long lashes as she held the photo out toward Shales. But this isn't you, she said. Hardly. Even with my hair, I was never an Adonis, I fear. He's a good-looking chap, eh? And clever. Ah, that, my dear, is the picture of a gentlemanly and burglarious valet who departed with an excellent collection of my studs, cuff buttons, and scarf pins a year or so ago. I found this some time after and meant to turn it over to the police. Perhaps I'd better now, eh? By all means, she said smoothly. She had turned back to the shells of the younger days. Gordon, what a dear you were, and are. End of The Folly of Anne by Ellen Farley